Hi, my name is Beth and I'm a psychological wellbeing practitioner from Newcastle. I just wanted to say the biggest thank you to the contributors of the Clinical Psychologist Collective book. I've enjoyed reading this so much and loved having an insight into the range of backgrounds and experiences people have prior to applying for the doctorate and it's been really interesting seeing the potential barriers to the application as well and how I can try and work around this. I really started to doubt myself and whether I was good enough to apply for the clinical psychology doctorate but this has really given me the confidence boost that I needed to give it a shot so the biggest thank you ever. If you're looking to become a psychologist Then let this be your guide With this podcast at your side You'll be on your way to being qualified It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast With Dr. Marianne Trent Hi, welcome along to the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. Today, we are going to be thinking about um, outcome measures. Um, And in case you're not sure, outcome measures are questionnaires or ways of us uh, gathering data about people to be able to use, firstly, as a baseline. So we know where people are currently on their level of functioning. Um, And then secondly, we might do them mid-intervention and then we might do them at the end of the intervention. And if you're working in perhaps in an IAPT service, you will be well versed um, in outcome measures because some services, they ask clients to do outcome measures every single session. And certainly when I worked in a CAM service, we also used to like to use outcome measures to see how well aligned the session was to the client's needs. And I will level with you, that one could feel a little cringy, you know, asking, how was it for you? How did I do? Um, And, you know, it's whether it's entirely valid asking someone to your face, you know, how was I? Um, So the way that I gather um, outcome data about myself as a clinician uh, is that my um, virtual assistant, Hannah, tends to ask clients for me and then they um, email her. Just kind of puts a little bit um, more, (laughs) uh, I don't know, not confidentiality because of course um, Hannah would know who had sent the feedback through. But it just feels like people can be, you know, really honest um, if things haven't met their needs, ideally, Um, you know, so it just feels maybe slightly less, I don't know, narcissistic (laughs) to ask Hannah to ask uh, on my behalf, you know, how we're doing as a service. Um, I know in a service I previously worked in, we used to have something called feedback Wednesday, which was every Wednesday, anyone coming through the service was given a questionnaire by reception as they arrived and asked to kind of fill it out um, after their appointment and just drop it in a box. And it could be anonymous if you wanted it to be. And that's a really useful way of gathering data about um, services. But in terms of what I do, um, so I work in um, largely adult mental health, I would say. 
So the measures I use don't screen necessarily for things like psychosis and don't screen for, um, you know, memory problems. I'm looking at kind of depression, anxiety, um, you know, trauma um, to come up with an idea of how someone is functioning, you know, whether their well-being is impacted upon, um, whether they have any risk to themselves or others. Um, and and you know how many problems they've got really so uh, that measure is uh, nicely represented by the core um, c-o-r-e which is um, freely available um, so technically it's called the core o-m so the core outcome measure and that's a series of 34 questions and um, you know they cover all of those aspects functioning problems well-being and risk um, and it covers like the last week um, from when people are filling it in. Um, and, you know, the options would be not at all, only occasionally, sometimes, often or most or all of the time. Uh, and some of the questions are negatively weighted so that they, you know, so that you are mixing it up a little bit. And of course, if you're asking someone about a positive thing, um, and they feel that most or all of the time, then that would be like a zero score. Whereas if it was something negative and the answer was most or all of the time, then that would be a score of four. So when I was an assistant, I um, designed a, a spreadsheet using Excel to automatically score this, um, which I still use. Um, and yeah, <laughs> some of my supervisors across the time of have used it as well because they've liked it because they can be a little fiddly to score. Um, so the way that I've done it is that it just means that you pop in the answers, you know, your numerical answers, uh, one to 34 um, with either zero, one, two, three or four. And then it will automatically tell you whether things are clinically significant and if they are, um, you know, where their levels of, um, you know, impact are most keenly felt and they'll do me some whizzy little graphs as well so yeah that's the kind of thing I used to get up to um when I was uh yeah when I was an aspiring clinical psychologist so um yeah so they're a useful measure so I would do those um along with the GAD7 which is an anxiety measure and the um, PHQ9 I also um quite like the ACE scale which is the adverse childhood experience scale. Now, I often send all of my measures um, ahead of time through my clinical software called WriteUp so people can do them in the comfort of their own home um, before our first session. But I actually don't send the ACE scale. So if you're familiar with the ACE scale, it's all about the first 18 years of life and covers trauma. And some of the questions, you know, they're not that nice. You know, it's about domestic violence. It's about um, sexual abuse. It's about um, physical violence and harm. And so I don't want to flood clients with that. Um, and I think what I will do is I maybe will do a special podcast episode on adverse childhood experiences and you know how they show up for our clients and how they can be indicated so I'll do that as a as a special feature 
um, with perhaps some disclaimers about some of the stuff I'll be saying in it. Um, but I think that's probably going to be uh, a better use of our time rather than just laboring the points on the eight scale here. So why do we monitor this information? Well, primarily it's because we want to know, like I said, we want to know where clients are starting, but also we want to know that what we are doing, you know, the approaches that we said would be helpful are in fact helpful. And if they're not making shifts, then it's a really good chance for us to see, you know, what, what the barriers are, what's getting in the way of those clients making progress. And it might be that, um, you know, it can be really useful to look at Maslow's hierarchy. So I'll often look at that um, with clients when I'm thinking about formulation, just to get an idea of where they're at. So um, for those of you who are not familiar with Maslow's hierarchy, it's a full title is the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it's like a multicolored um, pyramid. Um, with at the bottom the safety and risk needs you know emotional love needs and as it goes up and up and up um, the um, you know as it as it would with the pyramid it gets smaller and smaller um, and the bit right on top would be self-actualization so you know what you might be doing now by listening to this podcast is self-actualization um, let's just use this time now to have a short break and i will be back along very shortly if you're looking to become a psychologist then let this be your guide filled with lessons and experience that will help you get Yana and I'm a trainee psychological well-being practitioner. I read the book The Clinical Psychologist Collective book. I found it really interesting about all the different stories um, and how people got to become a clinical psychologist. It just amazed me how many different routes there are to get there and there's no perfect way to become one. And this kind of filled me with confidence that no, I'm not doing it wrong and put less pressure on myself. So if you're feeling a bit uneasy about becoming a clinical psychologist, I definitely recommend this just to put um, yourself at ease and everything will, will be okay. But trust me, you will not put the book down once you start.
Hi, welcome back. So self-actualization. Um, yes, that is what we are doing now. We are furthering our development needs, uh, which comes in the self-actualization category. Um, and, you know, if you were, for example, supporting a client who was trying to access, you know, a higher education course, um, but they, you know, were sofa surfing um, or they were in a domestically violent relationship or, you know, they didn't have enough money for food. What you might well notice is that they would struggle to engage and pay attention and really benefit from that higher education course. Um, and in the same way, if they've got all of those, you know, emotional turmoil needs but also you know physical safety and you know where am I going to sleep tonight that takes center stage and so any work with you to do kind of therapy um, or processing is just it's probably going to be set you know set up to fail so it can mean that you're having slightly difficult conversations with people um, that now might not be the right time, which is really tricky because um, people are like, well, I really like you. You know, I really trust you. And I, you know, I want to I want to get better. Um, and you're like, I know, I know you do. Um, and, you know, you're really moved with their distress. Um, but we're not necessarily closing to all services. You know, in an ideal world, we might be able to to refer to you know other relevant local services. And that might be, you know, um, shelter for helping with homelessness or, um, you know, the local housing office um, crisis team. Um, or, you know, a refuge, um, someone that helps with domestic violence, um, you know, because actually they've got more pressing needs. And in terms of services with long waits, it might be that you're able to, you know, come to an arrangement that once they can get themselves settled, um, that your service won't, won't make them wait for the lengthy wait again. You know, once they can get that stuff resolved, that because... You know, if their circumstances haven't changed significantly since you last saw them, that they can sort of, you know, monopoly style um, pass go and collect their £200, um, if you see what I mean. Um, so, yeah, that's all useful functions of outcome measures. But another really nice function is when you're able to sit with a client and show them how far they've come. And that makes you as a clinician feel pretty good as well. You know, you've taken someone from really struggling, you know, really not thriving, really finding every day, you know, challenging. Um, you know, they might be really low in mood. They might be having ideas of life not being worth living. Um, they might be, you know, really struggling with their functioning. And, you know, these things that you can't measure would be changes in facial expression, changes in how engaged the person seems. So we have this, um, you know, concept called flat effect. And that's when someone just doesn't really move their face much. You know, they're not they're not super expressive. Um, and, you know, to begin with, people can be really understandably 
problem focused and can seem a little trickier to engage. And as the intervention starts to shift, as the world starts to open up again, they become more interested in you as a person as well. So watch out for, you know, clients saying, well, how are you? You know, are you all right? Because they, you know, they they like you, hopefully. That's why they're continuing to come back to sessions, either virtually or in person. Um, you're a key part of the intervention. So I'm absolutely on board with Roger's uh, principles about um, you know, us being our therapeutic relationship and ourselves being one of the most key parts of the intervention, because if they don't like you, they ain't coming back, you know. And so I absolutely think that a human first interaction is the way to go. Um, and my training most definitely you know, taught me more about using more of myself in therapy appropriately, of course. Um, but I have done a psychodynamic placement um, within training, which meant that, you know, you very much play your cards close to your chest. But since qualifying, I really, you know, think I'm much more confident with being human and certainly discovering and exploring the compassion focused um, approach really helps me not only be my authentic self, but, um, you know, just be warm, engaging and non-judgmental as well. So it really helps me to bring those core, you know, aspects of the Rogerian theory into into my practice. And, you know, I think when people meet me on the street um you know i'm not that different um in person i might shout at my kids a bit less <laughs> uh, pretty annoying children can be can't they um especially at bedtime don't know if you've got kids but lately mine are pushing it a little bit at bedtime running into each other's bedrooms the little rogues um so yeah just because you're a psychologist it doesn't make you a wonder parent because no such thing exists so yeah just to recap um, I do use outcome measures and when I've been in every service I've worked in I like a bit of data I like to be able to demonstrate that changes are happening some services of course you know once you've made those changes on the measures you are out you're out of there um, so it's useful to know the data but really I think we need to be in a position where we are embracing data as clinical psychologists we're not shying away from it and with the you know the technological advances we've had lately it doesn't need to be paper heavy um, so you absolutely can find electronic ways of doing this um, and getting the data back to you and storing the data if it is obviously compliant with whatever your organisational um, policies are on that. I hope you found this useful. Um, as ever, if you've got any questions about anything, just give me a shout and I'll look forward to catching up with you for our next episode very soon. Take care. Bye. If you're looking to become a psychologist and let this be your guide With this podcast at your side You'll be on your way to being qualified It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast With Dr. Marianne Trent
My name is Diakolola Amujo. I am a recent psychology graduate from Ireland. I am also an aspiring clinical psychologist. Dr. Marion's book, The Clinical Psychologist Collective, has been so helpful to me on this journey to becoming a clinical psychologist. As I plan to continue postgraduate studies in the UK, I found it extremely useful that this book provided in-depth information on the UK declinsight application process. I enjoyed reading about the experiences of both qualified and trainee clinical psychologists. The various narratives were my favorite part of the book as everyone's story was different and it provided amazing insights into the clinical psychology journey. I would definitely recommend this book to anyone interested in psychology and aspires to become a clinical psychologist.